0: Hi, I'm Alex Garcia, and thanks for joining us here at NTWC Live. It is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, and I. We'd like to say thank you to a few groups that helped make this possible. It's USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, The Weather Company, and The Weather Boy. And now, here's Tim Smith. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live. It is Wednesday June the 8th. We are glad to have you now that we're a week into the hurricane season. We've already had some action, all kinds of action uh, in the tropics. Okay, a little bit of action in the tropics and of course a lot of action at the National Hurricane Center as well. We'll probably talk about that a little bit during the course of the program today. But before we get started, we do want to thank all of our sponsors. We've got folks that make this event a possibility and they've been with us for a long time. Of course, USAA my goodness they've been a a, a proud sponsor of, of the national tropical weather conference and things we do with the storm science network for a long time and we appreciate usaa also the south padre island Convention and visitors bureau boy thank you guys uh, we had a great conference on site this year finally after a couple of years away and we appreciate the support of the spi CVB. And look forward to being back there in 2023 the weather company walmart black magic weather boy visit brownsville and the port of brownsville all folks that make this event a possibility so we appreciate all of them for being with us today great program coming up today dr frank Marks is with us and i think we're going to hear a lot of uh, fun stuff there and of course we have a new uh, director at the national weather service and the national hurricane center and director so we're going to talk about that but let's get it started with the former director of the national hurricane center good morning mr bill reed
1: good morning tim and hello everybody from uh... Hot and steamy Galveston. I think we set over 13 records for for warmth in May down in Galveston, and June's going on the same track here on our overnight lows. But uh, usually, when it's hot, we're not getting a hurricane. So right now, that's a that's a pretty good deal. All right, uh, I'm, I'm really happy that we have a, a our guest today is a, a, a friend of mine over many years now, and. Uh, 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 Recognized expert in the world of uh, flying into hurricanes to gather data to learn more about them, uh, uh, Dr. Frank Marks heads the uh, uh, Hurricane Research Division of NOAA, which is located uh, out on Virginia Key uh, uh, along Biscayne Bay. And uh, recently, I think I hear we've uh, added a, a joint uh, workstation research facility at NAC, so you can collaborate uh a little better with, with the folks there uh uh when i first went to nac the uh frank was busy in the in the the development phases of uh, coming up with the hurricane forecast improvement project i'm sure we'll talk a little about that i guess uh, uh frank i'd like to start off with uh sort of a can you give us like a, a quick overview of uh, what it is your group does and the things you're interested in looking at at this stage of the game
2: yeah thanks bill um well our group uh we're at the atlantic oceanographic and meteorological laboratory here in virginia key uh on the east side of biscayne bay uh, on a barrier island no less um but our group we have a staff of about 45 um and it's We've been operating this type of research since 1956, so uh, our predecessor groups were the National Hurricane Research Project, which went until about 1960, and then it became the National Hurricane Research Laboratory, and it actually preceded the formation of the National Hurricane Center. Uh, Bob Simpson was the the driver in the formation of this laboratory or or research group. And and so I came on board in 1980, um, uh, right out of grad school, um, and I've been on staff since 1980. I took over as director in 2003. Um, Our focus is really uh, the NOAA focus is to better understand and predict uh, tropical cyclones or hurricanes, which are a form of tropical cyclones. and so we do it in many different ways uh behind me you see the NOAA research aircraft i have a p3 uh, and and the g4 jet uh we have two p3s uh so we've been flying aircraft into the storm since 1956 uh the latest generation being the p3s and the g4 uh, and i have been flying in storms since 1980 uh probably over 100 storms um and uh so our group really started as an observational group because there wasn't any real way to do prediction at the time when we first started uh you know the the statistical dynamical models came along in the in the 70s uh under charlie newman's guidance um and uh now we're working with the environmental modeling center and the weather service on the hurricane weather research and forecasting model. Uh, So we've been working very closely with the the Environmental Modeling Center up in Washington to develop and improve the hurricane forecast by improving the numerical guidance. Uh, So that really came to a head and the focus in the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program, uh, which started right after the Katrina-Rita era, um, about the time Bill came to the Hurricane Center uh, as the director, we were spinning up the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program. Uh, we started really improving the Hurricane Weather Research and Forecast Model, or what we call HWARF. Uh, we worked to develop the HMON, which I don't want to even explain what the acronym means because it's it's a horrendous acronym, uh, and I don't remember even half of it. Um, so I'll just say HMON, we, that was developed here. Um, and now we're working on what we call the Hurricane Analysis and Forecast System, or HAFS, or HAFS, uh, which we're hoping to roll out uh, next, su- next summer. Uh, so we've been running it now for about three seasons, and we're going to run it in a test mode for operations this season. Uh, and so th- really, it's been a, a, a program where we've been developing the tools uh, to improve the models, uh, one, by improving the, the way the model represents the processes in the hurricane, the, the microphysics or the rainfall production, uh, how the energy comes off the ocean through evaporation, the condensation part. Uh, and then the kinematics, how the flow evolves, uh, you know, some of the work we've done the, at the lab here, is the whole idea of eyewall replacement cycles came out of research that we did in the early 80s um, that showed that the hurricanes evolved. They kind of put the death knell on the storm theory idea of seeding the outside of the storm and letting them contract and and, and weaken. Um, so uh, we've been doing a lot of work there. Of recent past, we've been focusing on getting all the models into the models, the data we can collect on the aircraft. Uh, The other thing we're pushing is new observing technologies, uh, unmanned aerial systems, autonomous underwater vehicles, autonomous surface vehicles to be able to better sample and observe what's going on in the storm so we can better characterize it and evaluate it in the numerical models. So that's probably a long synopsis, but kind of gives you the flavor of the type of things we're doing. Yeah, uh, I'm intru-
1: uh, I think a lot of our our, our viewers are intrigued with anything uh, new and improved. The the uh, H-WARF is, has has uh, a proven track record of steady improvement. Uh, it, uh, uh, it was kind of a secondary tool for the forecasters when I first went to NAC because it it lacked the consistency and skill of the of the uh, global models at the time. Now it's it's a go-to model for especially for the intensity aspects. Uh, and that was one, I think that was our, our number one goal was to tackle the, the uh, issue of non-improvement we had up until that date in intensity forecasting, and in particular capture some of the processes and how to forecast better rapid intensification. Uh, how's it look uh, uh, now that we're almost 15 years down the road on, on the rapid intensity forecasting?
2: that's that's a good point bill uh really when hship started our goal was to improve the forecast by 20 percent in five years for tracking intensity uh and then 50 percent in 10 years we did we made the five-year goal we didn't make the 10-year goal Uh, but we also put a goal out there that we called our stretch goal was to address rapid intensification Um, and as the model h or the hurricane weather research and forecast model improved Uh, as we made improvements to the physics, the way the model treated the boundary layer, you know, the surface layer, how the energy exchange worked, Uh, we got better structure, we got better intensity change. And now the Hurricane Center forecasters in the last two years are actually calling for rapid intensification like they did in Ida uh, and they did in Laura, uh, a number of cases. Um, And they're right more than they're wrong right now. Not that you know rapid intensification the way that we define it is only the fifth you know 95th percentile of intensity change so it's you know the very extreme changes kind of like the michael the ida did just before landfall and of course as you know very well from your position at the hurricane center the worst scenario is a rapid intensification of one category just as the storm's coming ashore Um, And and so that was our focus. And I think uh, based on our past experience, the last two or three years, we're making great strides on the rapid intensity change. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that it's such a small percentile, the way we define it, it's only the upper 5%. uh, But that had about a three times worse intensity error than the normal storms. Uh, And so it was a real big, a sore spot for the hurricane specialists. And so they were saying, don't help us get, uh, you know, a forecast up to 10 knots. We want you to help us in those forecast there is when they're up in the 20 knot and 25 knot and 30 knot range in 24 hours. And so we really put uh, a focus, strong focus on that. It's still a focus of, of the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program uh, right now, but Uh, The way we've evolved the hurricane Forecast improvement program due to the Weather Act in 2017 that Congress passed is uh, the way I put it is we're kind of going more towards the Weather Forecast Office's attention, the hazards. Uh, We wanna be able to help not just NHC get the big picture right. We wanna be able to start targeting the local uh, issues. And as all of us know, Damage is a local problem. Uh, you know the track and intensity that gets you to the stage set up, but you know the storm surge, the flooding, uh, the severe weather, tornadoes, uh, the heavy rainfall. Those are all local issues that are very much driven by the WFOs or weather forecast offices' knowledge. Uh, so, how we can help them communicate the risk is really where we're moving towards now. Uh, as well as keep improving the track and intensity forecasts. Yeah, I think
1: the uh, uh, the the one aspect that that really helps at the local level is that as you make these improvements farther out in time, the local offices can brief with with a lot more confidence uh, what the expected impacts are uh, twenty twenty almost twenty years ago with a. Uh, a Rita-type storm like that, we we really had a very general idea. You know, you pretty much uh, told people, add a category if you want to make a decision, and here's a wide swath of the coast that you probably ought to consider evacuating. And the, uh, it's been dramatic in the last several seasons how uh, tight we've been able to make the, the calls for evacuation and and, uh, and better use of the resources in response by knowing that.
2: Well, the other thing that that's true is as we improve our tracks, you know, the area that we're warning is shrinking, um, and so it really it, it's a point of diminishing returns. You can't keep, you know, just improving that track. You got to really start dealing with, okay, what's next? You know, what what do we have to warn for? And so you mentioned that you know you heard that we put together a new. Uh, facility at the Hurricane Center for us to test ideas. Uh, It's called the Hurricane Ocean Testbed, and it has ocean in it mainly because uh, the National Hurricane Center also has responsibility for forecasts over water, uh, and they have what they call their uh, impact-based decision support customer is the Coast Guard. Uh, And that came about through the Alfaro uh, catastrophe Mm -hmm. uh, when Joaquin happened. Uh, so we didn't want to leave out that aspect. So we're calling it the Hurricane Ocean Testbed so that we can test not only ideas that uh, help the, the Hurricane Specialist Unit, but also help the Tropical Analysis and Forecast Branch, which is responsible for a lot of that um, impact-based decision support for the Coast Guard and for the open water. Uh, whereas the Ocean Prediction Center carries the northern part of the Atlantic. They cover uh, the the tropical atlantic and east pacific and so we wanted to open it up uh so that's really just opened uh last i guess it was december we had the grand opening it's called the bill lapenta laboratory named after uh the former head of nsep uh, national center for environmental prediction bill lapenta uh, who passed away in a catastrophe uh from you know uh a rip current off the Carolinas due to a storm, a hurricane going by uh, out at sea. Um, and so they named the lab after Bill. Uh, and we've already started holding, uh, I, I would say, tests there. We've been uh, working with the, the Hurricane Center to connect with the WFOs, so the Weather Forecast Offices, to look at the Inland Wind Hazard Warning. And so the Hurricane Center folks uh, and the Miami Weather Forecast Office folks developed this way to project the inland wind warning, taking the wind speed probability product and applying it inland, and coming up with different thresholds than we do at the coast. Uh, and so we wanted to test that with the Weather Forecast offices and coordinate them, and so we set up this laboratory where we could put out warnings. Uh, and then work with the WFOs to actually see how those things worked and to evaluate the thresholds we were having. Uh, so it was the beginning of us charting to connect to people. Uh, we're using the uh, AWIPS system in a cloud now, uh, which we have available at this hot center, the HOT. Um, and so this summer we're going to be running some real-time demos bringing the aircraft data in right into the hurricane specialists uh, in through the hot center so they if they're not on duty they can come in and actually see us running a mission remotely from the hot center bringing the data down in real time making it available on the AWIPS in the cloud so they can actually see the products they can ask questions um, you know so that's kind of our goal is to start building this connection between the researchers the the hurricane specialists and the weather forecast offices and TAFB to kind of really see how we can push products forward faster.
1: That's interesting. It sounds like a, uh, a nice, uh, well-planned uh, move to look at the applied research end of the hurricane business in addition to the basic science that you guys are noted for over the years. Uh, on the ocean side of it, one of the challenges that the forecasters had When I was there, was the perceived lack of skill at forecasting the uh, the size and extent of the wind field at various intensities. Uh, Are you working on that aspect
2: in in the hospital? Yes, yes, we are. Um, Well, wind speed probability I already mentioned because that's based on the statistical uh guidance that that was developed for driving that but what we're working on is trying to see if we can better inform the statistics by storm uh by getting the ensemble output of the size and the radii from the ensemble giving us a spread you know how much spread do we think is going to be there and trying to inform the scale the the size uh you know that we want to put out on a in say the wind speed probability or the hurricane specialists want to particularly over water as you're you just mentioned that's a biggie um you know ships at sea you know in the past we tended to not put as much emphasis on that but i think since the alfaro disaster and the mou that that the memorandum understanding that the weather service and hurricane center has with the coast guard to provide you know decision support services uh, we're really putting more focus on all cases and i think that's probably one reason why there's so many short-lived storms being forecast now uh you know like an alex who's there for a day as a as a tropical storm or last year we had four or five of them that were 24-hour storms or 36 hour storms a lot of those are out at sea in near shipping routes and we're Really focusing on getting the guidance out there so that the mariners are better informed about the structure of the storm. Uh, I think a bigger area, Bill, is going to be how well do we do the radii over as the, shore, when the storm comes ashore to better inform you know the hazard from the gusts and 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 the area that's really going to be affected by wind uh, in particular.
1: Yeah, there's always a lot of debate about that. Uh the uh the, a lot of the engineers keep reminding me that their design criteria for their buildings is based on a three-second gust so that the, the to them the gusts are very important and then the the length of time that the building will be under stress from those gusts uh and that strikes me as a very uh meso to local scale phenomena that's going to be challenging to get at
2: yeah uh, uh, and you're 100 percent correct and with the Uh, The Coastal Act that was passed where NOAA is responsible for providing guidance within 30 days after an event of the extent of wind versus flood, surge, or rain damage to help uh, inform FEMA of what the cost will be on flood insurance and, and issues like that. Um, it is a big challenge, and, and we have a lot of partners now. We have the, the Hurricane uh, Research Consortium Group that's made up of a lot of universities uh, and private companies that are providing observations in landfall, uh, and we're trying to link our observations out at sea from the aircraft together with these data sets to better understand in terms of the physical science, the basic research. What's actually going on but also to inform those uh analyses that that noah has to provide to fema yeah I, I haven't been neglecting
1: looking at the latest research on that but uh but one of the things that fascinated me was was how rapidly the nature of the surface wind flow changed from leaving the uh ocean interface to the, even on the flatland beach like like over here what, What's your thinking on how how rapid
2: that change is? well, it's interesting because yeah, your Texas coast has a barrier island through a lot of a large portion of it. Um, we've seen the flow change as it goes over the barrier island, but then it gets over the open water again, and then there's another adjustment as it comes ashore but uh it's typically within probably. Uh, 10 20 miles that adjustment happens Um, Mm -hmm. and it's different coming onshore than it is going offshore Uh, you know so there's an asymmetry in that adjustment um, and and the fetch Uh, so it's really interesting the other thing that's really an issue of course and this goes to the surge problem is the coastal bathymetry is a big player in this Mm -hmm. uh, because of the wave set up and the fetch Uh, You know, there's a lot of issues there with how the flow evolves. Um, And, and of course, the storm structure as it comes ashore. When you have a, uh, you know, a Harvey type of event where you have an eyewall that's evolving and starting to develop smaller features as it starts to break down, uh, you know, these whatever you want to call them, mesocyclones or, uh, you know, disturbances in the main wind ring uh, of the eyewall. Um, You know, we've seen those from scales of a kilometer across to, you know, 20 miles across uh, as the storm comes ashore. And it's these kind of things that are really going to drive that kind of damage and that adjustment. And I don't think we have enough observations. I mean, we have some observations, but can we characterize the whole spectrum of the animals in that zoo? I don't think so. We know that, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening there. Um, and they're very local. I, I mean, and they're stochastic. They, they're random in a way, yeah. uh, depending on the timing. Uh, so it's going to be a while before we get that right. But I think we can provide probab- probabilities better by knowing the characterization. It also
1: strikes me, just in looking at radar imagery from many landfalls, that there's a lot of variability. Some storms produce more of those vortices than others.
2: Yeah, and it depends on where they are in their life cycle too. Uh, I think uh, if I w- want the public to get one thing out of the understanding of hurricane, hurricanes are like people. They have a life cycle. They go through changes. They get fat. They get skinny. Uh, they tend to start skinny and get fat, just like we do. Um, but they'll go through a cycle. You know, <laughs> you know, they'll go on a weight loss program and they'll have an eyewall replacement cycle and and they'll shrivel up and stuff. Uh, but, you know, there's no consistent A hurricane is not a hurricane is not a hurricane. It's, you know, they're all different. Uh, and where they affect it locally is really important because, you know, the expectation of what might happen in a Miami versus a Houston is very different from a landfalling hurricane. Uh, yeah, there's gonna be damage. There's gonna be rain, there's gonna be wind. The probably be a surge, but it'll all be different in how it affects the location, uh, right. based on the, the local conditions. And and I think people need to understand that that we know something about the hurricane, but when it comes down to the local stuff, it's a lot trickier right. uh, than right. just getting the track and intensity right. Mm-hmm. Tim, I've been
1: hogging the uh, time with Frank here. I'll bet you got some interesting. Question, maybe he can trip him up better than I could.
0: (laughs) <laughs> right on the money with everything. Uh, I'm impressed. We are, We do have some questions coming in. Before we get to that, uh, we'll take a moment and thank another one of our sponsors, South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. You know, we've been hosting the National Tropical Weather Conference on South Padre for, what, 10 years now? Uh, 2023 will be year 11. And, uh, Frank, you were with us uh, on the last one. We appreciate that and hope to have you back again. It's uh, it, it's always uh very interesting and informative uh, a few days on South Padre Island, and the island has been a great host to us from the very beginning. Uh, it's a great place to to hang out, great place to to spend your time, even when you're not at the conference. So we encourage people to check out South Padre Island when you get an opportunity. Um, you know, the the forecast. I, I think we've been fortunate to have lived in a time when when Dr. Mark, you and your your crew have really made some huge strides um, and and you think back to when we all got in this business 40 or maybe in Bill's case fifty years ago um <laughs> it's been a while uh, but but we've seen dramatic changes thanks to the work you're doing Where do we go from here I mean what do you, you know 20 30 years from now what are we going to be looking back on this 20 year period and saying wow I can't believe we didn't know this yet or I can't believe we weren't there yet
2: um, that's a great question, Tim, uh, and I must say I have to preface this answer with there's no dumb questions, there's only dumb answers, and I'm going to try <laughs> not to be uh, provide a dumb answer here. Uh, but I think uh, one of the things that I, I look for in the future is one I mentioned is getting more to the local issues. Uh, how do we downscale the information we know that the Hurricane Center is providing? and make it more actionable. Uh, You know, one of the things that we've been fortunate is we've been increasing the actionable timeframe for people to take action, uh, to protect themselves and and their property in some cases. Um, But I think one of the things that we have to start thinking about is, uh, you know, the climate is not static like it was when we were younger, uh, it's changing. Uh, it always has been changing, but the speed with which it's changing has changed. Um, and, and so one of the things I, I can, I'm concerned about is how we deal with the hurricane problem uh, in this changing world. Uh, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't purport to know anything about what's driving it. All I know is what I see. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of change in the hurricanes that I work in, that I fly in, they haven't changed much. Uh, But the public has changed where they want to live faster than we can improve the forecast. Uh, You know, so we have more and more people in harm's way uh, than we did, say, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, And I know living in Miami, that's definitely the case. Uh, That's changed quite a bit in the 40 years I've been here. Uh, and so the thing that bothers me is how we're going to prepare for that, you know, that that fact that we have more people. Um, I don't purport to know how hurricanes might change, but I do know that climate change is a local problem as well. The climate in Miami is very different than the climate in Minneapolis. Okay. What's going to happen in Miami as the climate signal changes is going to be very different than what happens in Minneapolis or Nome, Alaska, or even Corpus Christi. Um, and, and so I I think we need to be focusing more on how we communicate and delve into the risk uh, communication issue for the public because... We can keep increasing the time frame. We're now at about two days, maybe two and a half days. We wanna be at three for FEMA. But, you know, when we put out a forecast that there's a storm forming like we are now, and it's five days out, what do people do? What are we communicating? Are we communicating the right message? Uh, you know, we're looking at things like the cone. Uh, how useful is that? When is it useful? Uh, can we do better in communicating the risks? Uh, We have so many hazards that a hurricane engenders as it comes ashore. Uh, The broad spectrum, everything the Weather Service wants to forecast, we're covering in a hurricane pretty much, except for snow maybe. Um, uh, And and so how do we communicate that? So I guess what I'm saying, Tim, is I think in the next 20 years, what I would expect is that while we continue to make progress with the basic physicals part of the science... Uh, and improve the forecast guidance, we need to really start thinking about our social communications, the type of stuff that you, Bill, Alex, uh, the National Tropical Weather Conference is focused on, the communicators, how we do that, how can we provide the right information to people to make them more resilient to what's going to happen in the future?
0: I I think that hits hits the head, hits the nail on the head in so many ways. And, you know, we we talk about on television, we we give you a point. Here's where the hurricane is, but we we know there's more than a point. Then we show this beautiful satellite picture that shows this massive thing out in the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. So we're giving you two things that really are not representative of the storm at all. It's a point on a map and this massive thing and expressing those concerns uh, is is the challenge and, and as the data gets better and better, which brings up the next question about as the forecast gets better and better, expectations are getting better and better. Uh, the public now expects because of the work you've been able to do so far to make these forecasts that much better. Now they almost expect perfection and we're not there yet, but we're getting there.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, it, that's an interesting segue because uh, I was uh, collaborating with a group here at UM that was looking at the cost benefit of forecast improvements and so what we did was we ran a scenario over the period of hfip uh the hurricane Forecast improvement program we just had we've improved the forecast for track and intensity by about uh 20 percent 25 percent so what we asked was a question okay and and we have these different products wind speed probability or rainfall probability and say Uh, storm surge or something like that if we could improve by another 20 percent what would the forecast products look like Uh, and so we produce those products by improving all our estimates by that amount and then we showed people here's what we can do now here's what we could do if we can improve it by another 20 percent what do you think the worth of that is and it was shocking that you know people were willing to pay like 50 dollars you know, each family, 50 bucks for that improvement. But when you add that all up, it's a couple hundred million dollars, you know, that they're willing to pay, uh, you know, uh, for an area that might be affected. And, and it's interesting that the public is, you're you're one 100% correct. They want more. Uh, and, and they don't always know how to express it. Uh, And so, these type of studies where we look at what could we do and what is the cost of doing it, then you start getting into the cost benefits and the return on investment and things like that, which, you know, I don't know about Bill, but when I first started, we didn't think that way. (laughs) You know, that was not at the top of our uh, agenda Uh, And it's not really at the top of my agenda here for my young staff because they want to do the research. Uh, But it's the type of thing I think we need to be thinking about um, as we move forward uh, because of the risks changing. Um, I I think Bill knows, and you might know, Tim, that uh, a group of people, Roger Pilkey, Jr., Chris Lancy, and a couple others, have been evaluating the cost of hurricane damage uh, to the country. And and they've been trying to do it every 10 years. And each of those 10 years, the cost kind of doubles, uh, which is crazy. But it's... show, And and the driver on that is not the hurricane. You know, it's the people and the stuff where they live and what they have that's driving that doubling every 10 years. Uh, And so unless people are going to start moving coast for whatever reason maybe because the sea level rise i'm not sure uh we're going to have that problem still people you know the cost of livings are going up uh they buy stuff they got you know 10 tvs in their house instead of one when i was a kid we barely had one um you know there's a lot of stuff and and the way we live we put a lot of our infrastructure in harm's way uh because these are rare events and we don't think about I mean, look at the oil industry. I mean, if we have another major storm like Arita, God forbid what gas prices are going to do. So I think these are hot-button topics that, as a scientist, you know, taking in the data we can collect, the forecast guidance we can produce, how can we improve the message uh, to communications of the risk and hazard?
0: Let me ask oh, one go back to Bill. Yeah. Yeah. That's... that's. How do we do that? You're right. And, and it's a challenge. You know, social scientists around the world are trying to solve these issues. And, and and we see it every day. We've got a good question coming in from all... Kind of changing gears coming in from online. And this goes back to the operational side. And Casper's asking, with the uh, new introduction of the subsurface and the surface ocean drones and things, how is that data going to help the models? And will have have the ability to use that data in real time to help the forecasters?
2: yeah okay so these are new platforms uh we have something called a sail drone uh which we were able to vector into hurricane sam last year and actually have a ship go you know unmanned ship go through the eye uh, of sam uh, and collect data and send video back throughout the whole transfer uh, uh, of the storm over the over the sail drum pretty dramatic footage we also have these underwater Gliders that kind of go up and down, up and down three or four times a day, profiling the ocean. Uh, The real place where those are going to have an impact is improving how the models represent the processes that go on in the energy exchange. You know, people talk about, oh, high sea surface temperatures. That must mean it's favorable for the hurricane to develop. Well, that's partially true. It depends on what the atmosphere temperature is above that ocean to exchange the energy. Uh, And so we need to have a good understanding of how the ocean evolves. The ocean is pretty complex fluid. It changes slower. In the atmosphere, but we have things like uh, the Gulf Stream, we have the Loop current that comes up out of the Yucatan, we have fresh water from the Mississippi and the Amazon and the Orinoco Rivers that are changing the surface salinity, which changes the ability to exchange energy. Uh, and so these kind of observations are going to improve the ocean part of the model. Uh, we're at that phase now where we're trying to get the ocean to catch up to where we are with the atmospheric part of the model uh, by getting things like salinity and sea surface temperature better mapped in the ocean structure. And so these new sensors are really helping us, one, characterize these different things. We know now that there's a huge freshwater lens on top of the salt water because it's lighter. Uh, over the whole Eastern Caribbean, thanks to the Orinoco and the Amazon rivers. Now, the amount of rain that falls is also going to determine how big that area of freshwater is. Uh, We're able to map that now. We've been able to calibrate the satellite imagery to give us estimates of how big that freshwater area is. The same is true off the Mississippi. You know, you have a a big rain event, MCSs go up through the Mississippi Valley, dump a lot of rain, cause flooding up in St. Louis, that slug of water is going to come out into the Gulf and it's going to lay on top of the salt water and produce another lens. And of course, the Gulf is a favorite haven for hurricane development. Uh, uh, I can tell you Ida went through uh, an area of fresh water during its development, its intensification. I don't know that it... Caused it, but there's these features now that we're starting to see with these new instruments, and we're able to calibrate satellites now to map that are going to be critical to us getting the ocean right in the hurricane forecast. The ocean is, you know, probably 40 or 50 percent of how we deal with the, that exchange. We're getting the atmosphere pretty good, but we got to get the ocean good too. I hope that answers the question that was asked.
0: But- yeah, I think so. Bill, jump back in. We've got some good questions. We'll go ahead. We've got more coming in, but go ahead, Bill.
1: Yeah, I go back to the the, the messaging uh, uh, now and in the future. One of the things I I I, I keep to steer of the problem away from the the overly politicized issue about climate change by saying the problem is here now. We're not going to get storms uh, uh, appreciably worse than Harvey producing rainfall on flat land. You're not going to get storms intensifying much worse than what we had with Hurricane Michael or Dorian or, for that matter, go back to Katrina and Rita. That's what they always do. Uh, so the, the problem is convincing people to prepare for what's facing them now. If you can get them to do that much, they'll be much better equipped to handle the, the more subtle changes
2: that occur in the future due to climate change. Yeah, and I I agree with that, Bill. I've always said when people ask me the question, oh, are hurricanes getting worse? I said, I don't know. Uh, But I'll tell you, there's still hurricanes. And and if I don't make the forecast better, it doesn't matter what climate does. (laughs) You know, I want to make the forecast better now because in case it changes, the hurricanes aren't going away. Uh, But one thing I would say, Bill, about the communication part, and this I think is important to me in thinking ahead, you know when we have an event like a Harvey what do we do do we let people go right back and put houses right back where they were for another hit say maybe 10 20 years ago
0: 20 answers, years ago yeah, from now, I,
2: I, oh, yeah <laughs> course, right now perfect. we are doing that but should we be thinking about informing those decisions uh, you know by saying well okay yeah that's true but this could happen again and this is how it might go uh, you know storms are rare enough that you know if you're not like you or i bill who lived through season after season after season of multiple storms they don't see a storm more than every 10 15 years and, and so you know they just moved to the town boom a hurricane hits they didn't know what to do you know uh it it, it strikes me and then people building you know, oh, we want to build you know i go up to Destin, florida and i watch them building these condos right on the beach or I just go to Miami Beach and watch them building condos up and down the beach. And I say to myself, this is going to be a nice seawall for us inland, uh, <laughs> uh, but should we be doing that stuff? I don't know that Noah or myself as a scientist has a role in doing that, but we can certainly inform that kind of decision-making going forward, mm-hmm. too. Um, I, I uh, And Bill, I have to give the, the quote I remember you saying throughout your few years at the hurricane center was do you really want to put your house flooding risk at one in a 200 chance <laughs> yeah yeah that's the communication that we have to have is that sufficient for flood insurance or or any kind of insurance
1: yeah well i, I even put it a different way we use the one in a hundred for the flood flood building codes in most places though they bumped them here from harvey uh the uh, uh the insurance industry tells me that the typical homes built today in the U.S. the risk of fire in them, big loss to fire, is is over one in a thousand. And so, so why would you accept a, a one in a hundred risk for for losing your house to a flood if you're not willing to risk anything greater than a one in a thousand risk for fire?
2: Well, and the insurance companies have to be thinking about that, too. Unfortunately for flood, I mean, most of that's the U.S. government is the insurer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in my position as a government employee, I would like to help them get better uh, at, at, at providing that kind of guidance. Yeah. Uh, speaking of improving models,
1: uh, uh, we, as most years, we've, we've already seen the uh, the longer range aspects of the GFS cranking out what we have. Uh, euphemistically called model canes that, that and the argument has been well the conditions were okay for potential development but uh, the the skill in those is almost negligible I mean every now and then the, the blind squirrel finds an acorn trick happens and it develops but uh, are any of your folks working on that problem or is that a different issue
2: um, We are looking at it. I mean, we're pushing the hurricane analysis forecast system is going to go to seven days uh, instead of five days, which is what the hurricane weather research and forecast model and HMOD do. Um, So we're already pushing that seven day. I think even when you were at NHC, Billy, you were experimenting with seven day guidance products. Um, I think the biggest rub there is what's the use of those, Um, you know, uh, Uh, I'm a big follower of the forecasting uh, continuum of environmental threats idea, facets, Um, and so we've been trying to apply uh, through HFIP the facets concept towards the hurricane problems. Uh, And so one of the big things that comes to mind and that I've raised is the seasonal outlook. Okay, we're putting out a product. What is the purpose? Who's the customer? What is the message we're trying to make uh, with that? And, and the sa- I think the same thing goes towards a 10 or 20-day uh, guidance product, say like from GFS. What is the purpose? Who is our customer? What do we want to communicate? Uh, so in some ways where Aship is looking is, how do we communicate what we know? Uh, a- a- and who is our customer? Uh, and so my my comment, and maybe I, I diverted from your actual question, Bill, uh, but, uh, you know, what is the goal of that 10-day guidance? Uh, you know, it's like, I don't know how many people come up to me, and I'm sure they come up to you both, um, and say, well, I looked at the models. Which one do you think is right? And I always say, they're all right you know the hurricane center is looking at every one of those they have the knowledge they have the information they're combining them the best way to give you the forecast there is no one model that's right um and and so it comes down to uh at 30 days what is in my mind we're looking at probabilities um and and one of the things that h adapted uh with our new strategic plan was the hurricane center asked us to look at um, looking at guidance on probabilistic tropical cyclones, which is kind of what we saw with Alex this past week. Uh, it was a potential tropical cyclone for almost four days as it crossed the Gulf and actually crossing Florida before it became a tropical cyclone. Uh, but uh, it came about, I think, Bill, during your era with the Maria, issue, you know, where the, the Leeward Islands are kind of out there as storms develop, how do we warn them mm-hmm. of something potentially happening in the next few days? It's not yet there, but it is. And so what they'd like us to, they gave us a goal to give them probabilistic guidance on formation timing and location, knowing that we won't give the exact point and the exact time. But give us a window, and, and I think you see that in the, in the tropical outlooks now. You know, they have the two-day and the five-day, you know, the oranges and the red. I think uh, uh, Tim showed the orange over the East Pack, or you did, Bill, the orange area over the East Pack. They wanna, they're doing pretty good on that right now. They have a pretty well-tuned ability to give that area and timing five-day and two-day, but they want us to give us more granularity in that five-day and 2 days. So um, I don't know if we'll do that for 10-day or a month ahead. I don't think that we're there yet, Bill. I agree with you. No. Uh, but ha- that's the kind of thing that we're looking at uh, right now is how do we give them better idea of the probabilistic timing and location of a genesis or a storm to become a storm?
1: yeah it's, it it it's a uh, seems to be that the, the to me just a very subjective look it's the same old problem is that uh, uh in the way I look at it is if if the model's forecasting development out of something that already exists as a disturbance, I pay attention to it if there's nothing remotely close to a disturbance out there now and the model decides to spin something up I'm
2: skeptical. <laughs> yeah and and say ECMWF the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting comes up with their model global model says oh there's going to be some spin up here and the G, global forecast system of noaa says yes and the canadian model says no the icon the german model says yes you know so you're getting these multiple potential realizations that you can then start to tune to, to guide probabilistic or the probability something will form mm-hmm. and you can get a rough idea of the location yeah
1: as f- as to how f- far you go out with it and the thing might, uh, what i learned when we uh, started experimenting with the six and seven days that if you give uh, a potential use user a whiff that you can do a forecast at, at five to seven days they're going to start asking for one at ten <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just that oh, it's human yeah, nature do. if you're in a business that the uh, well, like the Navy and moving fleets. It, there is no uh, too much lead time for them. The more they have, the better they can make uh, the necessary moves to make their decision.
2: Yeah, and that, that's the same thing true with the seasonal outlook. Why has Colorado State and NOAA and other organizations put out seasonal outlooks? Who's the customer? Well, somebody finds value. Uh, you know, because if we did away with the product, I'm sure they'd beg for it to come back. Uh, I know the reinsurance industry and the insurance industry has been a big customer for that type of guidance. Um, and so they're funding that type of work. Um, you know, uh, I, the, those four, those seasonal outlooks, you know, their value to the public, I'm not sure. It, it, to me, it's always been, hey, it's hurricane season there's going to be hurricanes coming. There may be a lot, there may be a little, uh, you know, but, you know, our rule of thumb, and Bill, you know it well, it only takes one. <laughs> uh, hit your house, and then it's a terrible year no matter what. Yeah. It's a pretty easy sell in South Florida
1: because uh, Andrew's still fresh in enough people's minds and brought up every year, and that occurred in, a, in an otherwise uh, puny season. I think, what, six or seven storms total, uh, it's an easy sell over here. We had Alicia and a four four storm season. Uh so you can that, you can use that to convince people that the preparations are not not correlated with the seasonal forecast for the local person.
0: And I think too, guys, it just gets us talking about the hurricane season. You know, it gets the gets the TV guys saying, Hey, hurricane season, it just creates an awareness. So people are oh, no. yeah. there.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like a, at my house, my wife says, Oh, you got to grease the shutters. I go out to grease the shutters, and all of a sudden, all of my neighbors start thinking, Oh, geez, it's hurricanes. Season. Frank's not <laughs> greasing the shutters.
0: That's Dr. Frank is working his time. <laughs> I've got one more comment from online, then one more quick subject. We're getting close to the end of the time. And, and Barry Goldsmith, we know Barry, uh, made a comment about how resilience has become a big part of the conversation and, and how he's suggesting that improvements in resilience need to be incorporated in risk communication. And, and I think that's so important. And, you know, all the events we've been through here in South Texas and everywhere else, resilience is is a major issue.
2: Well, I look at Louisiana. They've been hammered, <laughs> what, five, six times in the last three years? And uh, talk about resilience. Uh, you know, they keep going back at it. You know, it's uh, – but it's different locations, you know, Lake Charles, uh, Grand Isle, uh, New Orleans. You know, it's – it's a uh, – it's a constant for them. And and so they're very aware, uh, you know, the people I worry about are up in new England, uh, New Jersey, uh, who don't get it as frequently, you know, those are the ones that, you know, may not have seen, uh, you know, an event, uh, in a long time. And and that's a challenge.
0: We'd be remiss if we'd finish this conversation without talking about uh, the changes at the, National Weather Service and at the National Hurricane Center. Uh, We haven't really mentioned it, but uh, we've got a couple minutes to go. So we've got a new National Weather Service director who is the director of the Hurricane Center. Um, Ken Graham moving to the Weather Service, and then Jamie Rome, the the deputy director, is now acting director of the Hurricane Center. Uh, Dr. Marsh, talk about that a little bit. These are guys that we know and know and have been part of the hurricane community for a long time, and they're taking a step in in a big direction.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't know whether to congratulate Ken or to offer him condolences. Um, uh, what I did, though, was uh, one of the benefits I have uh, leading the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program is we straddle two parts of NOAA. We straddle the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research and the Weather Service. And so we've always had an executive oversight board. Chaired, co-chaired by the head of the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research and the National Weather Service director. A- and uh, Rick Spinrad and um, Jack Hayes were my first two leaders. Uh, and, and Rick, of course, is the head of NOAA now. Um, and Ken will become, you know, he replaces Louie as my other co-chair. And so I'm looking forward to having Ken sitting across from somebody new who we don't have yet from mm-hmm. the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research to co-chair my executive oversight board because I think that'll help us, at least from the hurricane side, have somebody who understands what we're going through and what we're trying to do who's seen it. Um, Ken is dynamic. Uh, you know, uh, I just hope he doesn't burn himself out. Uh, he is amazing. Uh, he's just uh, a bundle of energy. He's an idea guy. He's just phenomenal in terms of understanding people, communicating. Uh, I think he'll do a great job as long as he doesn't kill himself doing it. Um, uh, having Jamie take over as the acting director, I think, is going to be a plus. Jamie is also. uh uh, get can do get it done type of person uh for people who don't know jamie led the uh the storm surge unit for many years at the hurricane center before he stepped up to be the deputy director when ed Rappaport retired um and, and i think jamie will do a wonderful job and i and just another piece of information mike brennan who is the head of the hurricane specialist unit will be the acting deputy for jamie so um as Bill knows, because he had me on the selection group for when he was hiring Mike as the Hurricane Specialist Unit group, I said to him, "You can't do wrong because you got a great team. You, you got Mike, you got Jamie, you got uh, Dan Brown, uh, you know Chris Lancy. You got a great group of people there in the leadership at the Hurricane Center, and so I think it's going to be a smooth transition." Uh, uh, with Ken not being there this year. Uh, you know, Jamie is very good. He's, he's a good, great communicator. Uh, he understands the social side of communication. Um, uh, Ken did too. Uh, Jamie, and to give kudos to Jamie, he was the one who helped set up the hot center. So he was instrumental in putting that together, that hot facility. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with Ken. I already sent him an email and said, Ken, anything you want from me, I'm here. I uh, said the same to Jamie and, and to Mike. Uh, I think it's going to be seamless. Uh, you couldn't get a better group you know, of folks taking on new roles. I think it's perfect for Noah.
0: That's terrific. That's, That's just terrific. my
2: assessment as a, an observer.
0: And we're excited because they're all friends of this program, and we appreciate uh, all right. they do be able to be part of what we continue to do bill uh we're getting close to the end in fact we're over 11 o'clock so do you have some final thoughts before we say goodbye
1: yeah i'm right right there with uh frank uh people sometimes worry because there's not an uh, official director there but i remind people there's been many seasons <laughs> where <laughs> the acting director has been on the hot seat for the whole season ed Rappaport spent a lot of time as acting uh director and uh and in fact my first one over there i was acting deputy and he was acting director and we managed to not burn the place down so it'll it'll do fine under their leadership and uh and uh and, and frank uh, kudos to you and your team on your work i find it very exciting uh, the advances that are coming forward out of that and i'm glad you were with us today
2: well thank you it's been a pleasure and i totally enjoyed my visit to south potter island and and the uh, conference um, you know it's a, it's a great group of people to interact with um it's different than you know the science type of community i deal with on a regular basis but mm-hmm. like i said i think that's the future the type of the work that you guys do in communicating the information that we physical scientists produce uh you know it is invaluable you know we tend to look at things we understand and predict things we can measure But that's not necessarily what the public needs to know. So I I give you guys kudos too for doing the job you do to communicate the information we produce.
0: Well, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Frank Marks. We appreciate you being with us today. Great information, and I think. and Bill, thank you. Great job, as always. Uh, great questions, great insight. We appreciate the knowledge there. Uh, we also want to thank our sponsors, in particular the USA and the South Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, been part of this program for a very long time. It's been a great program today. Next week, Mike Builder, the Hurricane Program Manager for FEMA Region 3, will be with us. That's next Wednesday. That's the 15th of June at 10 a.m., so we hope you will join us then. In the meantime, have a great week. Stay hurricane-free, and we'll see you next Wednesday.